celebrating the love between a man and a woman, Susan and I will be reading it together. Please help us by reading aloud the sections marked Other, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. Salt and rejoice in you. We'll extol you yet more than wine. I am very dark but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon, do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me, and they made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon, for why should I be with one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tent. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Ingedi. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved. Truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar, our rafters are pine. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins. Refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. This is the word of God. Well, thank you, Jimmy and Susan, for reading this beautiful passage together. Didn't they do a great job of reading that? Isn't it give you a, a good, yeah, yeah, it's worth applauding, yeah. Um, it was a beautiful love song, and it's meant to be a song of love sung between a husband and a wife. So I'm so grateful that we had two such willing and able persons to read it uh, uh, for us. Now, for very good reasons, as you heard that, and as you maybe look through the rest of, the rest of that book, for very good reasons, the Song of Solomon has always been one of the most provocative and controversial books in the Scriptures. We're not quite sure what to do with this erotic language and imagery. How is it that this ended up in the Holy Writ? 
and how is it also that we are to interpret it? Now, if you're visiting among us, you may just think, well, this is a rather purient pastor who wants to talk about these things. But what you may not realize is we've been working our way through the whole uh, Old Testament together. And last week we looked at Ecclesiastes, and this week it's our opportunity to look at the very next book in the Bible, this book called Song of Solomon. It's part of our Daily Bread Project, and many of you are reading through the Old Testament and New Testament as well along with us. And so we come to this book. It's always been a little bit of an unsettling book, even from ancient times. Even Jewish scholars in the earliest days were unsure whether or not to include it in the Hebrew canon of Scripture. In fact, uh, apparently they had strict restrictions on this book that you are not allowed to read it until you're of a certain age for obvious reasons. And it's been true throughout the history of the church. We've wondered, what is this book about? How are we to interpret what is truly frank sexual imagery that occurs, hinted at in the sections which they read for you, but explicit in other ways as you read through the book. How are we to interpret this? In many ways, in ancient times, they, uh, in, before the time of Jesus, many uh, Jewish scholars looked at it essentially as an allegory expressing God's passionate love for Israel. And this was a common viewpoint about it, to allegorize it, not about human beings, but rather about God's love for Israel. And throughout the history of the church as well, it's been very common for people to think of it as as a, a picture of Jesus' passionate love for his bride, the church. And I agree that there is that level of interpretation which is appropriate and valid. But I disagree if we say that it is not also an erotic hymn to marital love. It's clear that's what it's about. And if we're going to be honest with the text, we need to let it be that for us. So let's begin to ask ourselves, what are we to make of the frank and suggestive language which occurs in this book? What does this say to us about how God views this most intimate and personal part of our lives? I promised you an R-rated sermon today, but I hope it's only PG. Okay? Uh, and uh, what does God want to teach us through this book? Why is it in the Scriptures? So let's take a look at this poem, mostly in this section which they read for you, but I'll need to look a little bit beyond it and, and beyond the Scriptures, that, beyond this book itself a little bit, and ask some questions of this text this morning, and let's find out in it, and you can take notes if you like, three lessons in this book and three observations in this book. First of all, three lessons about marital love. Many first-time Bible readers are surprised and even shocked by the sexual frankness of the Song of Solomon. I still remember reading it in high school when I was trying to make, make my way through the, the Bible, reading the version of the Bible called The Way. Do you remember? The, any of you guys have any... No real Christians among us, I guess. Oh, thank you. All right. You know, it was the Living Bible Translation made for teenagers like me in the early 70s. It had pictures in it as well. And I came across this book and I thought, oh my goodness, what is going I was shocked myself. It is, after all, a poem about erotic love, a poem about marital love. 
the first chapter, which Jimmy and Susan read for us, is an introduction to the theme. And in subsequent chapters, or we should say poems, it's actually a series of about four or five poems collected together, perhaps. Um, we read both about the marriage and the consummation of the marriage of this young couple in love. Some of this is presented in rather graphic detail, causing us perhaps even to blush when, uh, when, when, we, when we read it. What are we to make of this? Why is this frank celebration of marital love preserved for us in Holy Scripture? Well, let me give you three reasons why I think it's in there, or three lessons from it uh, about marital love. First of all, the Scripture is, this is here because God wanted them and us to know, first of all, that marital love is God's good gift, not human invention. It's not a human invention. We didn't invent this process. We didn't make it fun and something we look forward to. We didn't create the desire to propagate the race. We didn't make it a pleasurable experience that we seek and long as expression to as intimacy. This is part of God's good and gracious design. Marital love is God's good gift, not human invention. And so this is why I think that this... Uh, uh, this text is here. It's a celebration of human love, and it refers all the way back to the earliest words and pages of the Bible. When the Bible, when God said, "It is not good for a man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable, a helpmeet comparable to him." Sorry, my my Bible is getting a little stuck together here. Um, and, uh, and so he created, in, in chapter 1 and verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. We are created as separate complementary beings. And God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish in the sea, etc. And then verse, uh, and in verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. God made man and woman. He blessed them and gave them the task to be his vice regents over this world that he had cared, created. We are to be the gardeners, the caretakers, the ones who cause it to flourish, to cultivate it, to build culture within it under God's uh, rulership and as God's representatives on this world. And part of that is the command to be fruitful and to multiply. And God said it was very good. And in the subsequent creation story found in the second chapter, we see that God created man and woman, and he created man and woman out of the dust of the ground. Think about it. God kneeling in the dirt, fashioning a human being. See the earthiness of the Jewish story of creation? We have God with us fashioning a human being and creating and taking out of him a rib to create for uh, us, for him, this helpmeet, uh, this woman for him. And he says, uh, uh, this is last, at last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of a man. Therefore, it says, and this is a very important verse, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That phrase from Genesis is, is repeated several times throughout Scripture by Jesus and by Paul himself, affirming the God-givenness of our design as reproductive persons. This is part of God's design. 
All human, and, and so, uh, so we are, this is part of God's good design for all creation. Now, if you're like me, you will agree that all human beings, myself included, struggle with managing this, pass, this the aspect of our lives. Do we not? Throughout the course of our lives, most of us, if we are very honest, we will admit that this is like a raging tiger within us. We're not always sure what to do. It Sometimes it devours us. Sometimes we think it'd be better if it were dead. Sometimes we, we, we stare it in the face and we hope it doesn't jump on us. But there's a tiger within all of us. We, we, we grapple with this. Sometimes it seems to us like these uh, desires cause to us more harm than good. Our passions can lead us to make incredibly selfish decisions and to do incredibly stupid things. I won't ask for testimony, but I know I'm talking about you because I'm talking about me. We've done it. And I find that the older I get, it just changes a little bit. It doesn't go away. Am I right? Some of you are further than me. <laughs> Not as many as I wish. <laughs> but in any case, they can lead us to make incredibly selfish decisions, to do incredibly stupid things. And so often, this has led Christians to be very suspicious about all of our physical passions especially those that involve our sexuality. And so if we're not careful, we'll begin to think that our spiritual lives and our sexual or physical selves are at odds with one another, that, you know, that there's something wrong with our bodies, there's something wrong with us, and we will mistake the, the distortion of the desires for the truth of what God created within us. Yes, if we're not careful, we will, we will begin to push these away, and we will assume that spirituality is mostly a, a head trip and some ethical decisions that I make out there, while my sexual life and my sexuality and my physical self is really unspiritual. But that is not, manifestly not, the biblical view of the human personality. God created us as whole human beings. He made us part of that whole design. The idea that our sexual life and our physical selves is illusory and, and, and of little consequence and that our spiritual self is something in our mind and our soul, and so, that is not a Hebrew idea at all. That is a Greek idea. It was adopted in many ways by the church by mistake, but it is not in the Scriptures. I know I'm yelling here. I don't mean it that way, but we just need to kind of see that. God, I guess... You know, I grew up in a very, some would call it a very repressed environment, and so I thought all these thoughts and desires that I had just meant I was a sinful guy. You know? Can you relate to me? No, I don't have to say that. I know it's not that kind of message. And I didn't realize that this was the way God made me. It needed to be managed, but it didn't need to be destroyed. You see? Marital love is God's good gift. It is not human invention. God made us as, as human beings, and as human beings, we have human bodies, and do, God declared that these human bodies are what? Very good. They need to be fed. They need to reproduce. They have joy. They have laughter. They love beauty. They enjoy the arts. They are not simply physical, but they include the physical parts of ourselves, and it's all very good. Now, like all of creation, our bodily appetites have been broken and marred by human rebellion, but they're not in themselves sinful and wrong. 
They just need to be managed to be restored and to be remade. And that's really the gospel story, how God remakes what is broken in our lives. The rescue which God has provided for us is not a release from our bodily selves, but rather the renewal of our bodily selves. God doesn't make us less human, but as my friend Bill tends to say, more human. Right, Bill? More human. He restores our humanity. He remakes us into the people He created us to be. Not selfish idiots, but self-giving men and women who love and give in love to one another. If anything, living in relationship with the God who made us should make us more passionate, more loving, more joyful, more desirous, as Henry David Thoreau said, to suck out all the marrow of life. Carpe diem, right? That's part of the story of the gospel. And part of this surely is for us to experience the joys of human intimacy. After all, without it, the human race would cease to exist, right? But lest we think sexual expression is merely for the furtherance of the race, this passage clearly teaches us another lesson, and that lesson is this. Marital love is for mutual enjoyment, not merely procreation, or not simply procreation. Clearly in this book, and I think this is one of the reasons this book is here, it's to remind us that the love between a man and a woman is meant to be enjoyed by both the man and the woman. It's not merely a biological act, but it's part of the blessing of God on creation. It's all the way through this text, all the way through. We see both of these people desiring, preparing, longing, and ultimately consummating their relationship. It's right there in the Bible. Yes, and what many people find so unsettling about this book is its frank depiction of that fact. It is clear as you read through this book that both the man and the woman are really enjoying their courtship and its consummation. They're enjoying this process. Throughout the book, both the man and the woman initiate lovemaking, and both of them find great fulfillment in it, even in the, in the earliest, earliest sections of which were read already, she says in the second verse, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Yeah. And then he said to her, if you heard it, behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. These are two people enraptured with one another. Many of the expressions in their own culture are highly erotic expressions, and we often miss the subtlety and the nuance of this, and it's a good thing that we do because it's not meant to titillate. It's meant to let us know that this intimate aspect of the human experience is something God created and offered as a, a gift to hu humanity. So, for example, when the woman speaks in the second chapter of tasting the fruit of the man's apple tree, she's probably not speaking about his orchard. <laughs> and when she rejoices at his left arm under her head and the embrace of his right arm, she's probably not simply talking about a nice, friendly hug. And when later in the poem she invites her husband into her garden to taste its choice fruits, she's probably not talking about vegetables and tomatoes. Yeah. 
I know that in saying this, I risk being impertinent, but we must be honest about what the poem is celebrating. And it is celebrating the utter rapture of human lovemaking. The man is not so poetic as, or subtle as the woman is. He comes right out and says what's on his mind, right? That's to our mistake. We miss the poetry of everything, don't we, men? Yes. It certainly means, it may mean other things, but it certainly means this. God's holy word includes this poem that celebrates the joys of human lovemaking. And given the fact that God has commanded uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the humans to be fruitful and multiply, it is clear that God intends for us to thoroughly enjoy and to be mutually fulfilled by carrying out this divine directive, be fruitful and multiply. But that is not the only divine directive with regard to the human race. We're not simply told indiscriminately to be fruitful and multiply. The God who made us also knows how we work best, and He knows that this powerful, beautiful gift is best used within the confines of that perfect place where God intended it to occur. And so we see the third lesson that happens in this book, and that is this. Marital love is for covenant celebration, not personal fulfillment. Marital love is the celebration of a covenant that a man and woman have made before God, before friends. The others are part of this story, too. You guys read it yourselves. It's a covenant they've made to belong together for the rest of their lives, and the marital union occurs at the end of that commitment to one another and not before. Yes. In the midst of this celebration of lovemaking, there is a warning that occurs at the very last part, which Susan read for you. She said, I adjure you that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. And that adjuration occurs verbatim three times in this book. So in the midst of this rapturous celebration of human love, there is the warning given three times, I adjure you, do not awaken this love until it, until it pleases. In other words, there is a right time and a right place, and the beauty of what God has designed will be marred if it is not used in the way God designed it to be used. Three times it's brought that in, that in this book, in chapter 3 again, and then also in chapter 8. Why? Because while marital love is a beautiful gift, it is also a dangerous gift. Misused, it can cause great damage socially, relationally, personally. There is a time and a place for this, and it should not be rushed. Why? Because marital love is a, a powerful, powerful force in its total self-abandonment, self-giving. It utterly marks us, either for good or for bad. There's no such thing as simply pleasurable sexual experiences. Yeah. Listen to the words which are considered to be the literary climax of this book, found in the eighth chapter, verses uh, 6 and 7, the literary climax of the book. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for a love as strong as death. Jealousy as fierce as the grave. 
Its flashes are flashes of fire. The very flame of the Lord, many waters, cannot quench love. Neither can the floods drown it. Yes, marital love is a precious gift, so it must be protected. It must be carefully guarded like the precious jewels in your house, the beautiful painting that you love, the picture of your children, the things most valuable to you. They're kept in a private and special place. They're not meant to be used selfishly or indiscriminately. It must be within the bounds of God's good design. What does that mean? Sexual expression is reserved for the man and woman who have committed their lives together to one another as husband and wife in a covenant called marriage. I know this is not the way life is, but if you think life is pretty great the way that it is, well, then live that way. (laughs) If you think we're kind of mixed up in this world, maybe it's time we pay attention to the way God designed this world to operate. God designed for this intimate relationship to be within the safety of a man and a woman who have promised their whole lives together that they will be accountable to God, accountable to their community, accountable to one another for having made that promise to one another because in that self-giving act of love, they are giving something utterly profound of themselves to one another. Yes, sexual expression is reserved for covenant and that covenant in our setting is marriage. Let me be very specific so that you understand. That means this. Sexual relations between two people who are not married to one another is wrong. The Bible calls that fornication. Sexual relations with someone who is married to someone else is wrong. The Bible calls that adultery. Sexual relations between two people of the same sex is wrong. The Bible calls this sin. Purposely arousing desires in someone who is not your spouse is wrong. The Bible calls this defrauding, making a promise it would not be righteous for you to fulfill. Sexual fantasies with someone to whom you are not married is wrong. The Bible calls this lust. Yes, these are hard truths in our culture, are they not? Now, I know some of you were with me, and now you're not, but that's okay. I just need to tell you the truth. I just have to tell you the truth. That's my job. Let me give you three observations, then, as we close this time together. Number one, God's way is the right way. God's way is the right way. Psalm 119 says, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy Word. I memorized that when I was nine years old. And when I was leading music in a youth camp for junior kids, they had to learn that verse, and I was playing the guitar in college. And so I thought, well, I got to get them to learn that. So I began a little, made a little tune. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word. Anyway, now you got it. How do you keep your way pure? By following. God's Word. You see, the God who made you as a sexual person knows best how your sexuality works. He wants what is best for you. He's only telling you the truth to protect you. 
From God's perspective, sex is the ultimate expression of a covenant commitment between a man and a woman. Therefore, the only place for that to be expressed is in within that commitment, and that is where sexuality thrives. God's way is the right way. Number two, second lesson, God's way is the best way. God's way is the best way. This verse is repeated twice in Scripture in Proverbs 14, 12, and 16, 25. There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Now think about that. There is a way which seemeth right unto us, but it's not always the best way. Yes, wisdom is often counterintuitive. I know it's old-fashioned, and that this approach to our sexuality seems woefully outdated in our so-called enlightened days. After all, we've shed nearly all the puritanical sexual taboos which stifled ex- sexual expression, haven't we? We can get married as often as we want to and only want or not get married at all. We are free to do whatever we want, and our culture shows the damage that that lifestyle has done. God's way is the best way. Are we really better off, culturally speaking, for all of our sexual license? Have we learned as a culture to respect one another more or less? Are we less likely to objectify women or more nowadays? Do we experience more sexual fulfillment through sex as recreation than we do through sex as covenant celebration? By removing sex from the safety of a loving family, have we made the world a better place to raise children? Is it really only a harmless entertainment to watch people taking off their clothes than every other movie you watch or surf we make on the Internet? Or does this somehow skew our own sexuality? Are our children really better off growing up with multiple sets of parents? I think in all these cases, if we're really honest, we'll agree God's way is the, the best way. And then thirdly, God's way is the welcoming way. God's way is the welcoming way. I love this story in the Bible that Jesus was walking down the road, and along the way, He saw a man who was a pariah among His people. His name was Matthew. Levi was his given name, but he didn't go by his given name as much. He went by a more Roman-sounding name because he had become a tax collector. And this was, not a, this was a double kind of insult to his people. And he's walking along the way, and he says, Matthew, come and follow me. Come and follow me. Of all the people who could have chosen to be one of his disciples, he chose this guy, a guy whose life had been one which others scorned. And so Matthew then decided to have a, a, a party to let all of his friends meet Jesus. And he didn't have any of the good friends. He had all the bad ones. So he had this party. And so Jesus came gr- gladly to join him in this party. And in this party, there were other religious people who looked at him and said, this man is a friend of tax collectors and of sinners. And in another gospel story that tells the same story in the book of Luke, Jesus just then tells a story about a man who lost a sheep, a woman who lost a coin, and a man who had lost his son, and the fact that in each of those cases, the father, or the, 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 uh, 
the woman and the man uh, and the shepherd, they celebrated when the one came home. And Jesus later held that as a badge of honor. He said he was a friend of sinners. You may disagree with what I've said at the end of this message. You may feel bad about what I've said at the end of this message, but I want you to know this. I love you, and I accept you just as you are. You are always welcome in this church family. Why do I say that? Because this is what God asks us to do. He says in Romans 15, 7, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And in another version, it says, accept one another just as Christ has accepted you. And the beauty of the gospel is this. Jesus accepted me long before I accepted him. Therefore, I need to accept others. Jesus welcomed me long before I welcomed him. Jesus died for me while I was still his enemy. Jesus loved me before I ever loved him. So, of course, we welcome you. We will tell you the truth. We will invite you to believe it and to act upon it. We will show you how beautiful this truth is, this story about Jesus, and all that implies we will lay it before you. But no matter what you do with that story, you can know you're always welcome here. We love you and accept you and welcome you just as Jesus accepted us. Yeah. Oh, but I would love for you, as when you love anyone, I would love for you to experience all of the good stuff God has for you. And so I ask you, to join me in bowing before the feet of the one who made you and saying to him, Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me. I respond in love to you. Thank you for welcoming me. I welcome you. Help me to become the person you dreamed of when you made me. Thank you for the forgiveness that you offer me. And help me to follow you as well as I can. You see, Solomon's love song, if you remember, climaxed with these words, love is as strong as death. And the wonderful truth is that Jesus' love was as strong as death and even stronger for his love both submitted to death and conquered it through his resurrection. And one day at the end of the time, there will be a great wedding feast filled with sinners like you and me. And Jesus will meet with his bride and everyone who is willing may come, no matter how soiled their lives, because his death washes them white as snow. And so the Scriptures close with these words, and the Spirit and the bride say, come. Will you come to him today? Will you come and surrender your life to him? Yes, it means changes. But will you do that? Because that is the way that Jesus makes and remakes us into his people. Let us have prayer as we close. Father, thank you for your incredible love. Thank you for telling us the truth even when we don't want to hear it. Thank you for loving us even when we've made a mess of things. Thank you for dying for us. We want to respond to that invitation that comes from the Spirit and the Bride. And we want to come and drink freely of the water of life. Father, we're 
thirsty, so very thirsty. And we look for to assuage that thirst in so many wrong and unhelpful ways. Thank you that you became thirsty so that you could offer to us living water, just like you did to that poor woman who met Jesus by a well in Samaria, whom he loved and invited to be part of his family. Thank you for that invitation. We receive it in Jesus' name.